Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Pat Crane-Ramsey. Pat began her dental hygiene career in clinical practice after graduating from Forsyth School for Dental Hygienists in 1966. After 22 years in clinical practice and dental offices in Bedford and Fall River, Pat's professional career expanded into a variety of areas. She's an experienced administrator with skills in operations management, event planning, volunteer support, friend and fundraising, healthcare and public speaking. She possesses hands-on experience in social media and its importance in today's world. Pat's professional career also includes volunteer involvement in organized dental hygiene. She was instrumental in the development of the Southeastern component of the Massachusetts Dental Hygienist Association. She served on and chaired multiple Mass Dental Hygiene Association committees, held multiple offices, including that of president. Her involvement with the American Dental Hygienist Association included serving and chair, chairing multiple committees and councils serving as District 1 trustee and president of ADHA. She also served as the first chair of the ADHA Institute for Oral Health, which has, was created to provide educational scholarships, fellowships, research grants, and community service grants to dental hygienists throughout the country. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Pat Crane Ramsey. Pat, it, I am so excited to have a conversation with you. We've obviously known each other for a very, very long time and from our foresight days. And I'm really excited to share you with the audience. So if you would start with by telling us a little bit about your story and how you got into dentistry, and then we'll go into some questions and we'll take it from there. Okay, this is nice. I, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity too, because now that I'm retired, I don't get to see anybody. <laughs> so I have a different life now. Well, um, I, I first want to say that, did I dream of being a dental hygienist from the time I was 10? Absolutely not. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. So I was a 60s kid. Things were expanding. But you looked at choices of nursing, teaching, yeah. secretary. I didn't want to be a secretary. And my home situation, my father had been very ill most of the time that I was growing up. Actually, he died two weeks before I went to dental hygiene school. And being the man that always took care of his little girl, the insurance covered the tuition. But because he was sick so long, I mean, finances were tight. It was the, before the time of college loans and all this stuff. So I knew I had to find a career that would take two years of college, something that I wanted, something that would be interesting. I was a good student, so I, I wanted something that was going to be challenging. I did have an uncle, my mother's youngest brother was a dentist, but I never had been to, a, the, I, my office never had a hygienist. So he kind of guided me towards dental hygiene. And, um, and that's where I started. I was a clinical hygienist and I absolutely loved clinical practice. I went to Forsyth and I thought clinical practice, that's what I love. It was a great time to be at Forsyth because we were going out to the Crittenden home for unwed mothers, cleaning teeth up in the attic, going to the industrial school. We, we did some training at, at Tufts. We did I, social dentistry. I can remember being out on the street, taking surveys on fluoride and uh, was not the most exciting thing I ever wanted to do. And I thought maybe public health is not for you. We worked in the clinic at Harvard as dental assistants. I was a terrible assistant. I had never worked in a dental office. That wasn't what I was in dental hygiene for. I graduated from Forsyth and went out into clinical practice and fell into the perfect practice. I was, the first day I got there, the doctor introduced me to each of his patients and my patients as the dental hygienist who worked with him not for him. I wasn't the girl in the office. I was the dental hygienist who worked with him. And my specialty was prevention. I thought I died and went to heaven. Oh, how, who was that? Paul Sickard in New Bedford. 
not downtown Boston, faculty in, in New Bedford. And he treated his patients with care. At uh, the end of every day, he went around the office and thanked every staff person for, it didn't matter if it was a good day or bad day. Before he left the office, he had come personally and said, thank you for what you did today. So as I, as I said, I stayed 16 years. <laughs> I would have stayed 16 years too. Right, right. And I didn't leave because I was unhappy in clinical practice. I never saw myself doing anything else but clinical practice. I didn't want to teach. I couldn't stand teaching. And he had cancer. So I wasn't leaving while he had cancer. He was out of remission. And an opportunity came to go to work at Forsyth. In the midst of this, I'd already gotten involved with uh, the state association and the national association. So I had some organizational skills and Forsyth already had a director of alumni and continuing education, Pat Conley Atkins. I remember Pat. Mm -hmm. And she was going off to, to have her first child, I think. Yeah, it must've been her first child, Sydney. So she and Linda Hanlon were going for a walk one lunchtime and they're going, you know who'd be the ideal person for this job? And Pat said, yeah, but she'll never leave clinical practice. And the next day I called her and I said, no, I'm looking for something. It was this dead air. So I was in for an interview, I think the following week. And I had mixed feelings about, you know, I have to tell Dr. Sickhart I'm leaving. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the things. So I went to Forsyth and it was right back at Forsyth. And I thought, boy, when you were in this lecture hall, you never thought you were gonna be here on the administrative staff. That's the last thing in the world I thought I'd be doing. So it gave me an opportunity to work with alums. And Forsyth has quite a cadre of alumni. And I think I've shared with you before that actually the first president, the female president of the ADA is a Forsyth grad, was a good Forsyth grad, Geraldine Morrow. Geraldine Morrow. Yeah, I was trying to, I did some investigation when I was searching for the female leadership of the ADA and realized that she had passed away. I was kind of sad about that. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about her, when I was at Forsyth, she was on the board of trustees, I guess. And I would say, I'm going to ruin her reputation because she never would put that she was a Forsyth grad at that point because she was fighting that bias. And so I said, I'm going to do an alumni spotlight on her, but maybe I don't want to do that and ruin things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But one of the things I found out from Barbara Schultz was that Dr. Morrow was in the first Forsyth fill and drill project. I mean, we all know the one from the 70s. They had one in the 50s where they were using dental hygiene students, not graduate hygienists like they did in the 70s. And Geraldine Morrow was one of those people. Wow. And you don't find that anywhere on her resume either. But those are the, the secrets when you talk to Barbara Schultz. <laughs> she must have been one of your instructors. Yeah. She was. She was a force to be reckoned with, Barbara Schultz. Yes. She was a force to be reckoned with. I can't say that she was my favorite clinical instructor. I thought I was back in the Girls Catholic Girls Academy when, you know, she talked to you. But I, I was very happy in later years that we were friends, that we consider, you know, we were, we got to a relationship that, I mean, she was just the epitome of what dental hygiene education should be. I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. So then let's see, what, what did I do from there? Oh, yes, I must have been, I, I was, became president of ADHA. I was married. And two years later, I had a baby. So I thought, I think I have to cut down my activity a little bit. So I went back to, to be, I went back to clinical practice and uh, felt great about doing that because I didn't leave because I was bored or burnt out. I was in a practice. My husband had a flower shop that we co-owned. He was the artist, not me. I was the, I don't want to say gopher, but I was, you know, you need somebody to deliver. You need somebody to do the books. I was doing all those things. And I, I worked in a practice. It was a good practice, but I had been spoiled by my first practice. And I thought, I think I need to do something else. I, I'm, I'm not happy. And one of the things I, I think is important with whatever you're doing, you need to be happy. Nothing's perfect, but you need to be happy with what you're doing. So um, I had a patient who 
was a Dominican sister who, and that was the, the order of the school that I belong, that I went to. And we were talking and she said, we're looking for development director. And I went, I've done that. So I looked and I ended up back at the academy and at the convent. Actually, my office, which is the largest office I've ever had, was my first grade classroom. Oh, my goodness. Which was a great, can you imagine having that as a, an office? I had, this, I had the area for the typewriter, the area for putting the, the newsletter together, and it was, it was great. And I think one of the things you need to do is, people would say to me, well, well, how did you have the skills for that? And I look at dental hygiene, healthcare provider skills, and organizational development skills. Mm-hmm. When you mesh those together, you've got building blocks for almost anything. I couldn't agree with you more. And the other part is you have to be like a sponge and read and just absorb everything from everybody. I'm one of those people that if I go to a tennis lesson, I've already read the book because I need to know what the words mean that you're going to be saying at me. So, you know, I I read everything on development. I went to every conference that I could go to. And I got the, I had the opportunity to work with Two, two boards, an alumni board and a parent board, people with different interests. I was there at the time when the school was celebrating its 100th anniversary. So I coordinated a whole year of uh, programs with, that went from the typical mass to organizing alumni student basketball games and alumni student glee club concert, all kinds of fun things to do, but it's those same organizational skills, whatever you, you know, this was with nuns and this was with someone else, but strangely enough being, I went to a, I'm a, I'm a product of girls education from kindergarten through dental hygiene school. And at this particular academy, girls were, you could do anything you wanted to do. There wasn't anything that was a, that, that was going to stop you. There were no barriers. The world was there for you. We were probably women's livers before we even knew what it was. What it was. I mean, right. yeah, we didn't know it, but something had to be done. You did it. So that was, it was a great background for me. And so I was there about, about six years. And it was convenient because my little child is now growing up and going to a school down the street and coming over to mommy and I sit him in the other room with a book and a, a drink and don't bother me. Don't, I'm having a meeting, you know, <laughs> one of those things. It was something you couldn't do in a dental office. I couldn't mm-hmm. do in the alumni office at Forsyth, but I could do it there. So it was, it was fun. And now was that your last position or? No, that was back. That was in the nineties, early nineties. Wow. Early nineties. And things happen in life. I mean, all mm-hmm. of us face all kinds of things that, you didn't think were ever going to happen. Deaths, divorces, losing jobs. My nuns left me. They merged with a group in New York. And I wasn't in a position where I could move to Newburgh, New York to be the development director. Right. So now I'm looking again. And I thought, I have fingers. I'm going, you know, I could go back to dental hygiene. Yeah. And at that same time, my husband died. So I have a seven-year-old. I'm a single parent. My job is disappearing. So I ended up temping. I worked for Procter & Gamble as an educational consultant when they were first promoting chlorhexidine. So I was doing lectures and so put things together so I could get through living with my mother. So, you know, there was, there were some bonuses there. And all of a sudden I got a call from a dental hygiene friend of mine and said, I know of a job. Two of my dental hygiene friends who didn't know they knew me were in Chicago at a meeting and one goes, oh, I know Pat Ramsey. Oh, what is she doing? She says, she's job hunting. I have a job. And that was how I ended up at the dental, at the dental board as an investigator. Wow, I didn't know that story. And it really wasn't what I wanted to do because I wanted to go into development. And my mother sat me down and said, you need health insurance. It's a job. You need health insurance. So um, she said, you know, take this job. You don't have to stay. You know, you're going to go when the job, your dream job comes up, then fine. You can do, you can leave and do something else. So I was only an investigator for about a year and a half. 
And it was, it was funny when I would go into an office and I always had my business card to give it to the secretary and, and the doc doctor, if they recognize me, oh, I know you, what? And it was always the same question. What toothbrush company are you working for? Because that's what dental hygienists who go and selling toothbrushes. So I would just say, look at the card, look at the card. So then there was a little embarrassment because they knew that the dental board didn't come visit you because you'd been very good. And, and I shouldn't say that because I would always tell consumers that because a dentist has a complaint doesn't mean that he's the worst dentist in the world because there are very bad dentists who've never had a complaint and very good dentists who had a complaint for maybe not a real good reason. They might've been having a bad day and they were a little rude or whatever. Shouldn't lose your license for rudeness because we'd have lots of people looking for jobs. <laughs> so then um, I'm trying to follow my career. It almost sounds like I can't keep a job. The executive director of the dental board happened to be a Forsyth grad. I think there have been, there have been five of us. That wow. Have been, yeah. Jan Selwitz, Kathy Fair, me, I guess it's four. And there's someone there now whose name I can't remember. Barbara Young. Barbara Young, yes. Who, I mean, she's an attorney, but she's originally a Forsyth grad. I did not know that. Yes. yes. Barbara and I are on a first name basis. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, whenever there's a complaint that comes from Tufts, I have to go before the board. So... Yeah. So, you know, Barbara and I know each other pretty well, unfortunately, but you know, that's part of the job, right? Right. I mean, that's one of the things that I really, when I got to the dental board, I, you know, I didn't know how I was going to like it. Cause I used to be the hygienist from the association that went and sat there with all of this stuff. And it was probably a job where I thought everything I've done in the past has come together. It's all here. I, um, I had a little flack because I was, a hygienist. And one of the dental board members said, to, we, was, we were talking about, there's never been a chairman of the board that was a hygienist. And can, you can be secretary. And so there was a discussion that went on. And I said, they're full voting members. They can be, you know, the hygiene member can be the um, board chair. And this doctor that we're very good friends. And he said to me, but what would a dentist do how would they feel if they got a letter signed by a dental hygienist? I said, oh, that's right. Because now I write the letter and I forge your signature to it. And so he turned to me and said, so it's not the smartest thing I ever said. <laughs> and, and I did, we went on with this with another board member. And I said, if I was on this board, I'd be chair. And he said, if you were on this board, I'd nominate you for chair. There you go. So, um, and, you know, you have to, you have to go about it in a certain way. If you come in with a hammer, they're going to swing back. My aha moment was at the dental board because I had had a very close relationship with an al a recovering alcoholic. And I have to say not all experiences in that time were wonderful. And you wonder why you go through those things. And my, one of my roles at the board was to deal with the impaired practitioner through their probation or suspension. I worked with whatever the committee was named then with Dr. Leo from the Mass Dental Society. I know it's wellness or something now. And the um, state also had a, the MPRS, and I'm not even sure if they still have that, but for impaired practitioners. And one day I got a Christmas card from a dentist who had been, who had lost his license and I had worked with him. And it was a Christmas card thanking me for all that I had done for him. And I thought to myself, what you went through prepared you for this. Because I had a better understanding of, of where they were coming from and you know what they were going through. I mean, I wasn't an enabler, but I, I understood. And I can remember sometimes I would be outside a room going, don't go in with BS because they already have the police report in their file. So, Fess up. Right? Be honest. Right. Be honest. <laughs> and I would, I would say to some dentist, only answer the questions asked. It's their job to prove you're guilty. Don't hand it over to them. Because some, sometimes people go in and they're so nervous. It's not what they want to be. They're their worst enemies. 
Yeah, because they just get diarrhea of the mouth and the next thing you know, they're spewing everything. I, I agree with you. I've seen it happen. Absolutely. And, and I know that sometimes my face is too expressive. I can I can still remember one dentist who was, I had said that to him, please don't keep talking. And I must have given him that look. And he and he just turned to the board and said, oh, Pat's giving me that look. I should stop talking. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> Uh-oh, <laughs> found out. Found out, I got caught again. But um, it was it was a wonderful place to work. I liked what I did. Uh, one day I got called into the director's office and I was told that I don't think, they had hired a consultant and the consultant said, I don't think you like what you do. And I said, I love what I do. I just not always happy with the people I have to play with. Because Massachusetts at that point, and then maybe it's gotten better, we were the lowest funded board in the country. Really? We could have 250 to 300 cases in prosecution at one time. And there was me and a long-term state worker who was at the desk. So um, I, you know, you, you keep going because you think you can do anything. And finally, I, I really had to sit down and look what was happening. And I decided as long as I kept my thumb in that dike, things were gonna keep going like that. So I gave my notice and they hired two people to replace me. So I thought, well, it was a parting gift to the dental board. And I mean, I went to the dental board, to the individuals in the dental board first and they knew exactly why I was leaving. And um, I said, it has nothing to do with the board members but I, this system can't continue like this. Right. You know, I, I find that in, in organizations, a lot of organizations that I've worked in where, you know, just because you work hard and you keep being the workhorse, right. they don't have to solve the problem. No, no, because you're going to do that. Right. And so you're not doing them any service by, by continuing on much way longer than you probably should have. So, well, and my husband taught me many years ago when I was at Forsyth because Forsyth had, um, they were cutting the budget, they cut my secretary and I was, you know, that was, I saw I was doing a one man show doing continuing ed alumni. And so one night I came home like, you know, about 1030 and he sat me down and he said, you have to miss a deadline. He said, I know how you are, but look at these deadlines. Which one can you live with if you miss it? He said, because if you miss it, they're going to hire somebody to help you. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I missed the deadline and it was killing me. And I was just like, I'm a failure. Within a week, they had hired some help. So I thought, hmm, remember that for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Because they'll just let you keep doing it. Yep. Yep. So, uh, and I, you know, of course, everything's bottom line. So if you'll keep doing it, that's fine. They're, they're saving a salary. That's right. That's right. That's right. So where did you go from there? From there, I went to a dental continuing education company. Oh, awesome. I thought, hmm, dental, continuing education, I'm all set. Um, I, it, I was only there about two weeks when I realized this is not going to work. Uh, what, you know, what are you going to do? Because now here I am. At this point, my husband has died. I'm a single parent. I have this boy, son who's about, is in, I think he might have been in high school. Yeah, he was in high school. College is coming. I have a mortgage to pay. It's not like you can just say, mm, going home. Well, fortunately, the owner of the company around the same time had the same feeling. So um, he offered me a delightful package and benefits. So I stayed home for, I, don't know, I think it was four months. And, you know, things always happen for a reason. One of my aunts was dying of cancer. So I helped her daughter because she was working as a hygienist and I would fill in for her. And, but, you know, I couldn't go on like this forever. So, and even during that period, I thought, mm, you know, I need a little bit more money. So a consulting opportunity turned up. So I went to work for a company and uh, with many branches and I was doing record review and making recommendations on how things, it didn't go on forever. I worked with some people from who were at Tufts at that time, David Russell yep, and somebody else, but I can't remember who he was. 
but I knew David from working with the board because he helped for dentists who were uh, who needed to be retrained. He and Lonnie Norris remediated, yeah. And it was great because they also realized it wasn't always their clinical skills that needed to be revived. It might have been their ethical skills and things like that. So. You know, I, I, I think that that's very true because I think that there are times when dentists, we are not, and I'm saying this in general, we are not financially astute. We don't come with that kind of mindset. You have to search for that and you have to go find it in order for you to understand the financial side of dentistry, the financial side of money management, all of those things. And unless you do, and that, it's one of my biggest concerns about students, especially with the amount of uh, student loan debt that they have, yeah. is if they don't start out the right way on day one after graduation, if they go out and start spending money and doing those crazy things, they aren't going to have any money in their 60s and 70s because it just doesn't ever get better. No, it's overwhelming. Yeah, you have to learn how to control that from early on. Absolutely. And one of the things I would do when I was at the board too, what I, I got so annoyed with these complaints that were open because records were not released. To me, that's one of those easy things, you know, oh, please. So I would call up and of course the dentist would rant because the patient hadn't paid the bill. Blah, 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 blah. And then I'd, I'd finally, I'd listen and, you know, do, yeah, I understand. I understand. And I'd get down to the end and I'd go, okay, now if you refuse to release the records. I'm going to have to fill out a form. You're going to be in the office. You're going to be called into the office. You're going to miss a whole day of production and you're still going to have to release the records. So right now you can charge the patient, but if we go through this whole thing, the board's probably going to tell you that you can't charge them. Oh, it was never explained to me like that. Okay. Let's, let's do it easy. There are two ways to do this. Exactly. Exactly. But you can't do that on every case. But it was the the record the records. But like, let's cut the paperwork out on this one. So, and so, where did I go from that? Oh, I did some consulting, and that was that was interesting because there were, there would be new grads who would come into wherever they had parked me in the office. Maybe I was in a closet on a laptop. I didn't care. Uh, I was getting paid well, hon. And they'd ask questions about, you know, how do I handle this? I mean, not dental questions, but more of those ethical questions. They knew I had worked at the dental board and they were trying to avoid some of that stuff that happens to people. So then I guess I listened to one of your podcasts and whoever, I can't remember who the name, who it was, but she talked about serendipity. And I thought, that is how things, there are some of us who make lots of goal, plans and goals and some of us, come on these things, serendipity. All of a sudden, the Forsyth has gone over to Mass College of Pharmacy. The person who was the alumni director is moving to Florida and she calls me and says, how would you like to come back? And I thought, wow, how many years? This is like 30 years later and I'm back as alumni director at Forsyth. Same job, different location. So, you know, a lot of, it's not like you're back at the old thing. There are so many new people that you're dealing with. And so I was there. I guess I was, and the school was, there were alumni who were upset when Forsyth came over. And I think it was a good move for Forsyth. It probably wouldn't exist now if, not that they had a choice. So I, I was there and I knew some of the complainers. So I, I would listen again. You know, not argue with them with, you know, you, you just have to accept this. But, okay, who are you angry with? Are you angry with MCPHS or are you angry at the Board of Trustees at the Forsyth Dental Center? Let's put the anger in the right place. And, and that, that worked out. So, so that position as a director of Forsyth programs only lasted about two years. And then I became the, the, the director for all of the alumni programs in all of the healthcare programs at MCP. And, and now they, they, at that point, they had three campuses, two in Massachusetts, the one in Worcester, Boston, and then Manchester. Wow. That was comfortable. You know, it was using the same brain cells. 
And then uh, for the last three years at MCP, I had a new position, which was called Director of Student Compliance, which is one of those things like, what does that mean? I'd answer the phone and the parent would go, I wasn't complaining about anything. I, I, I know, we should change the name, but I was in charge of um, monitoring the vaccinations, the mandatory vaccinations mandated by the state for all of the clinical students. So, you know, it, what I learned was that people, people think that students coming into college are really high tech. They're high tech in what they wanna be. Mommy is still uploading the records and, uh, you know, <laughs> we're mom, we've been mommies, we know. They're still uploading the records. And, and one of the things that I would do, I would always speak at Parents' Day. And I'd start off by thanking the parents. And I'd say, I know that any of you, any of these kids who are in compliance, it's because their mothers and fathers worked very hard to do this. And, you know, we'd have, I'd have students that would come in, the ones that are going to fight the system. And I go, there's no way around this. They'd come in and show me they had blood work. They would have a little Band-Aid on their arm. I said, that's not documentation. No. <laughs> Let's have a little lesson on medical record. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Or hand, or show me the documents on their phone and say, oh, are you giving me the phone? Because that's the only place that the documents are on right now. So, and I don't have room in this little closet to keep your phone and a hundred others. Go to the library, print the records, I'll upload it. I mean, there was a system to do, there was a software, but you know, there was too much to do it. Too much to ask. Yeah, I had some people that would say to me, you shouldn't do that. And I think, I want them to be compliant. I don't want to have to report them and then they're going to be pulled out of class and I'm still going to be doing this. So let's just do whatever we do to get Cut it done. through, make a straight line right to the end result, right? <laughs> I'm hundred percent with you, Pat. I'm hundred percent there. Absolutely. That was the end of my career. I retired in 2017. Wow. Yeah. I graduated in 66 and I will admit that I was 71 when I grad when I retired. The day comes when you think, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> right. There's something else in life. And there, you know what? I, I agree with you. I'm not quite quite there yet, but I am. You're much younger than I am, MJ. <laughs> well, I, I know I, I, I am, but not, not by a heck of a lot. And I, I realize that, you know, time is, time is too important. I can appreciate now you know, my grandson's too. I've got another grandbaby on the way. She's due in, yeah, she's due November 2nd. I remember when we were talking about college search. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so it's all gone by really fast. Like I, I still, you know, think of myself as that 29 year old girl that, that got pregnant and is having her first baby. You know, like I, where did the time go? Like so many things have happened and I'm sure that we all feel that way. But you, you, you do, you come to a point where, okay, this craziness is not worth, all of this craziness is just not worth it anymore. And there, there are other things that I wanna do, like stuff that makes me happy, like digging up stuff in my yard and, and, and you know, making something beautiful, taking pictures, lots of things you know, make me happy. But you know, working every day, as hard as I have been working through COVID like many other people, it's been a it's been a challenge. It well, it's thinking of you as the twenty nine year old, um, and have, being pregnant. I was president of the American Dental Hygienists Association when I was pregnant. Oh my gosh! And had morning sickness every morning. It got to be a joke that my whoever I was rooming with that time would wait until they heard the erping in the bathroom and would know. Okay, we're going to have a good day. <laughs> It's over with. I got married when I was president-elect. Can you imagine a poor man marrying a, a woman who's president-elect of ADHA? No. God bless him. Actually, it was a dentist who told me I was pregnant. I think I was at the midwinter meeting in Chicago. And I, we were at some meeting that we were at the sitting next to each other every day. And, and on the third day, he said to me, when you go home, you better have the test. Because when my wife looks like you look... She's pregnant. I went, I'm not pregnant. I haven't been home long enough. 
I was wrong. <laughs> you were wrong. It didn't take long, right? No. So I had my baby when I was past president and I was almost months away from being 40. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What a great story. What a great story. So you've had such a varied career. It's an amazing career in, in dental hygiene and dentistry. I mean, overall, I mean, you've just done so many amazing things. You know, is there a piece of advice that you got that really helped inspire you and kept you on track and doing more and gaining more knowledge and more skill set? I always have to think, my mother would always say, no matter what was happening, things happen for a reason. And I have to admit that when I, she even looked like she was going to say that, I'd go, don't even say it, don't even say it. And as you get older, you start to see those, you know, yes, they do, as much as you fight it. And, and I think what happens is it might be something horrible, but you develop some skills to deal with that. And if you look at those skills, you use them somewhere else. And the next time, you know, the other one is what doesn't kill me makes me strong. And sometimes you feel like you've become too strong, but it's that kind of stuff that, yes, you, every one of us faces things that we just put our heads under our pillows and go, I'm not coming out. This is it. It's over. And so you let yourself have a little breakdown for an hour or two, and then you face the problem. Whatever the problem is, what does it need to, what do you need to do to, to change it to, or to get around it? Coping skills, I have some. <laughs> One of them is picking up my latest knitting project. There you go. Blindly knit and it's all going to go away. Or you call a friend, not to wallow in self-pity, but to see how they're doing, especially during this COVID time. I, that's been, and then if all else fails, there's always wine. <laughs> Love it. I usually don't have to get to that last one, you know, the knitting with a friend or, or whatever. You face life and say, okay, put on your big girl pants and move on. I remember when I was trying to make some decisions about, you know, my practice and, and, you know, buying another practice I had wanted, you know, I wasn't quite as busy as I really wanted to be in my Lexington practice. So I started to look for another practice and you know, I knew that Maine had some great practices and I knew that, you know, they were struggling finding dentists. So I had had a conversation with a, a broker and I went up there and started to look at different practices and stuff. And I, I saw an amazing practice that I really wanted in Augusta, right below the state house. And I was driving home that day and I realized, oh my God, you're trying to escape. So I share this, you know, in the hopes that it might help somebody in the audience, because I've never really talked about this before. But I share this because, you know, I was trying to escape the decision of whether to leave my husband or not. And rather than make that decision, I decided to go someplace else and create a new life or do something, right? Instead of really dealing with the issue, which was that I was really unhappy. And, you know, it was a very difficult decision to make. It was not easily accepted by either one, my husband or my daughter, but I needed to make that decision for me. And I think now in retrospect, both, you know, all of us are very close. We will always be very close and we have a great relationship now. He's remarried. I get along well with his wife. You know, we have family fun times together. I mean, we do. We've traveled together. It's really quite lovely, you know? And so it, it all worked out, but I remember trying to escape. And it's hard getting to that solution at the end. It is. It's hard to make that final decision. And I think that, you know, like you said, sometimes you just have to have that little hissy fit right. and then you can move on. Right. <laughs> and so I did. I had that little hissy fit. I went and did my. Fortunately, before you bought the practice in Augusta. Thank goodness I didn't make, you know, make the investment, but because that would have been a long trek back and forth. Now I live in Maine now, ironically enough, but, but back then it was. But Augusta's a bit further. Yeah. You know, some of the things we've been talking about, how do you get to where you are? When you said Maine, I thought of a friend of mine who happens to live in Augusta, who's a hygienist. She's a past president of ADHA, Kathy Turbine. And uh, one of the things I learned, Kathy is an organizational person, and I actually replaced her 
as trustee of District 1. I filled out her term because she was moving on to be an officer. And she really put together some leadership programs for the board. And one of the ones, I mean, there are, you know, you do all these leadership skills, you know, what's your management style and all of that. And she did one that it was beyond just choosing, you know, having people realize what their styles were. She used it in committee, putting committees together. So you could match strengths. And, and I, you know, at first I thought, this is stupid. I hate these games. But I found that when I was at the, the hygiene, not the hygiene school so much, because I didn't, I actually didn't deal with the hygiene students that much, but I was advisor to the Student Alumni Association. And we would have meetings in my office with the board on the floor because we were having little squabbles about he's, she's doing this, he's doing that, he's trying to take over. And we go through the, you all have skills, take advantage because you can't do this, but he can do that. So get him to foolishly do that for you. And, and that's what you have to do. You have to surround yourself with people who have those strengths that you don't have. And you know you don't have them and you're never gonna have them. but make sure that you bring that person into your group. And that, that whatever the project is, it's gonna work. It's gonna work. You know, people would say to me sometimes, either at the college or at ADHA, I didn't think you liked that person. And I went, I can't stand that person. But they have a skill set. I don't have to like everybody I work with. Spare me from working with some of my best friends. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to be, honest about what you do well and what you don't do well. I agree. Great, great advice. Absolutely great advice. Who's made the biggest impact on your life, do you think? You know, I've been impacted by going through my career. As I said before, Dr. Sickard had the biggest impact on my dental hygiene career, how to be a dental hygienist. I mean, I graduated from Forsyth at a time when we didn't even use curettes. I was in the dark ages. We were sitting on bar stools. So I learned a lot about taking x-rays, about doing all those things. So he had the biggest impact. And I probably, as a hygienist, it's not good to say that the dentist was the one that had the biggest impact on your professional career. But he sounds like an amazing human. That's why he had an impact. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember one of the things he would say when he was teaching, you know, talking about dentistry to patients, he would say, my job is to tell you about the Cadillac of dentistry and the Rambler of dentistry. And it's your, I need to tell you about all of it, not my decision as to what you can afford, what you want. I mean, he's not going to let them go off and do something stupid, but he was the teacher. And it was, he'd help them with their decision, but he wasn't going to decide, oh, this person couldn't afford this or, or should be getting this because they can afford it. Right. You know what? That's really great advice. And I find that the students struggle with that quite a bit. You know, we always do a a high, medium, low Mm -hmm. treatment plan. And, you know, it, it's the students struggle a lot with that. I think that presentation skills, treatment presentation skills is one of the most important skills you can learn while you're in dental school. So obviously he learned it. But I think that, you know, you make a great point where, you know, he took time to educate his patients. And that's, that's what patients want in return. They need to know what you're doing and how you're caring for them, you know, more than anything. It's about that person. And, and like you said earlier, you know, horrible dentists don't get in front of the board of registration and great dentists do. You know, what, why it, does that happen? And I think, quite honestly, it comes down to rapport and whether or not you have rapport with your patients. Exactly. There was um, a dentist that I knew from um, the area that I used to work in, and he came to the board several times. And it was always the same complaint. The patient said he was rude. Now, after the third complaint, uh, you know, he came over, we were talking and his lawyer's standing there. And I said, can I talk to you? And he said, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I went, I'm not saying you did it. I said, but you know, you've got three complaints about rudeness. You need to go back to your practice and see what could you possibly be doing or your staff that makes the patient think that you're rude. 
because you're wasting my time with these complaints. But, you know, you need to go back and assess your practice. It has nothing to do with your dentistry. It's, it could be something very simple, but for three patients in one year to complain about rudeness. There's something there. Absolutely. So tell me about confidence because you seem very confident. You know, obviously your experiences have contributed to that, but were you always confident as a young woman? No, I was, (laughs) oh, oh, I was a little shy kid and in school I was never a leader. Uh, whether it was in high school. No, I find that hard to believe. No, I was never, I was a good student. I was a worker bee. However, there was a little part of me that if something had to be done and nobody's doing it, I'll do it. I can do it. You know, and that that's actually how I became vice president of ADHA. There was, it was a, during a time of um, turmoil and all boards have their problem. We used to refer to it at that time as the white hats and the black hats. And the dental hygienist from that era will remember it. And this older hygienist was the editor of ADHA's bulletin and had a journal and had been president way, you know, in the dark ages, came up to me at a house of delegates after the nominations from the floor were completed. And she told me that someone has to be a write-in candidate. It has to be somebody who, if she wins, can do the job. And because it was Wilma Motley, and I guess I was so impressed that she thought that I could do, I knew I could do it. And so I was the right, I'm the only write-in candidate who's ever been elected president of ADHA to this point. Wow. So that's, um, I mean, you know, and I, uh, California didn't vote for me. (laughs) And I guess I've always, I've always been blunt and honest well, no, you're you're not blunt. You're direct. Direct. Okay, I'm direct. All right. You, there, you, there's no gray. There's black and there's white, and you're direct. Like when people tell me that I'm negative, I go, I'm not negative. I'm an, I'm a realist. So um, the following year, I guess I don't, maybe two years later, when I was running for president, California invited me to their their district caucus, and the person from our district who was, you know, the usherette said to me, now, when you go in there, don't start anything with them. So I said, I'll be good. I'll be good unless they don't. But if they start, and one of them got up and said that they were very upset because they never knew that I was running. And I wanted to say there was a reason, you know. And, and I just looked at them and said, you brought, and, they, and something else was said. And I went, you brought it up. Now I have to finish it. <laughs> you know, that's, because they had actually... California had um, tried to impeach the officers and which was, I I was really annoyed with that, that it was, you know, foolish. And and what do you do to people's reputation? Absolutely. I mean, I was at a uh, Forsyth alumni board annual meeting and the president, Jack Hine, who was, you remember Jack, he gets I do remember Jack. Yep. And he thought he was being funny. And he said, oh, you know, we're so lucky to have Pat. It's going to be president of ADHA. It's too bad. She's probably going to be impeached. I didn't think it was funny. No, of course not. And, and, I, and I brought that to their attention. I said, when I'm embarrassed in front of a group of hygienists by the comment, you don't think you're, you're bothering, you're, you're doing anything to our reputations. Well, you are. And I got an apology. There you go. Uh, you know, it's, it brings up an interesting conversation that we started a little bit before we, we started the recording. You know, you've been around the block for a very, very long time. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> well, what, if, what is your experiences? Because, you know, even from my childhood, you know, because I started working for a dentist when I was 14. So I remember those days. You know, I noticed how differently I would be treated than the men. Um, so I, I just curious as to your feedback on your journey through dentistry and what it was like to work with all of these men as the dentist, always the dentist. And because there were no male hygienists back when no. we were going to school ever. That wasn't allowed with the, the, the state law said she until about 1972 or 73. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It says she, so no one else can do it. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. So when you've been around the block for a long time, you know some of that history. (laughs) 
Yes, yes, yes. So what has it been like? Have you had occasions where, you know, you, you really noticed um, bias and, and that it's been uncomfortable and have you been able to get to a point, did you get to a point in your career where you were able to, you know, just face it head on? Yeah, I think probably when I started, I, th- I was fortunate that I didn't work for a dentist that was like that because I wasn't the girl in the office. But getting involved, I was involved with a lot of dental committee work and I tried different ways of doing it. Of course, in, in the 60s, yes, we were women's libras, but we knew that women were second place. I mean, I was also a member of the Catholic Church. A woman is not first place. So I can remember being, I can remember being at one dental society committee meeting. I was on several committees as a consultant because she couldn't be a member. And I was the only woman in the room. And we, it was, I don't even remember what the committee was, but we were going to be meeting once a month. And I got handed the pad of paper. To take notes. To take notes. And I, so I said, oh, is everybody going to take a turn? play dumb blind. Is everybody going to take a turn doing this? And they looked at me like, no. And I went, oh, I think that's strange. I noticed that when it's an assistant, a hygienist, and the dentist, the assistant take notes, takes notes. If it's, if it's just a hygienist and the dentist, the hygienist takes the notes. And if it's just the dentist, you call in a secretary from the staff. We're in the Mass Dental Society office. I said, so I handed the paper back. I said, call the secretary. My poor boss got a call the next morning about that brat that was that worked for him. But, and he said, I would have told you the same thing. Exactly. But it's not just dentistry. It's that male attitude, and females have fallen into it, that I, you think about, I'm sure it's happened to you, that you say something intelligent, and the male looks at you and goes, wow, that came out of a woman. Didn't say it out loud, but you can tell that's what he's thinking. Didn't say it out loud. My boyfriend and I were at some political party and I was sitting next to this man's very involved in state government. And so Bill said, gee, he talked to you for a long time. I said, I got the feeling it's the first time he's talked to a woman that knew anything, you know? Because that's how he was, he was like, wow. I thought, oh my God. And every time he said, wow, I wanted to kill him. <laughs> he thought he was flattering. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. So, in, you know, I have a male child and you wonder, you know, what, we had a conversation a couple of years ago around the time of the Women's March. And, and he said, well, you've never had to deal with that, have you, mom? And I went, oh my gosh, are you kidding? And I told him various things and he was shocked. He was shocked. So I was proud because the Women's March in Rhode Island, my son was there wearing the pink hat that he'd asked his mother to knit. So even though, I mean, I wanted to be there, but I wasn't. But I thought, well, my kid has listened. I can remember being testifying at a dental at a dental board meeting when I was president. And one of the board members who had been a classmate of my uncle's, but they weren't friends because he told me what a jerk he was. He actually came over to me and said, you did a good job and patted me on the behind in the Gardner Auditorium. <laughs> I was like, this was back in the 70s. And I turned to him and I said, that is not just the behind of any woman. That is the behind of the president of the Massachusetts Dental Hygienist Association. And you will show respect. Now, my boss was standing there and he said, I was going to take him on. But he said, I was just dying that you handled him. So every time I saw him afterwards, you know, we'd be at some dental society meeting and he would stand against the wall with his hands on the wall. I walked by and I said, I don't care where you put your hands as long as they're not on me. That's right. It's, you know, but things, things have luckily changed quite a bit since then. And in fact, I was showing um, a young student, um, the dental school today. And one of the things that I did was show her, you know, our alumni hall where we have all the pictures of of different classes. And of course I showed her, I said, you know, 1920s, 1930s, I said, there was an occasional woman. I said, but you know, when my class entered, I think we're just about 40% 
which was a big deal back then. I remember it was a huge deal. And then when we entered this, when the, this class, D24 class started, 64% female. Wow. We're taking over. <laughs> well, the profession is changing quite a bit. And I do think that, you know, the profession is suits females. You know, it really does. So I think that, that it's, it's a great profession. Dentistry has been a great profession my entire life, you know, and you can come and go and, and it, it's always the same when you come back, you know, there's nothing really, you know, everything changes every day. You know, there's new technology, there's new ways of doing things, but you know, the actual act of being with a patient of caring for the patient, none of that ever changes. So no. But thinking about patients too, um, when I look at, at my clinical career, I found that one of the things I liked the most was the phobic patients. Yeah. And I didn't realize that until I went back to have my, after I left the, Dr. Sickard's office, the new hygienist, I went back and, and she said, I have to ask you something. Did you have any normal patients? And I, and I laughed. I said, I hadn't thought about that. But those were the ones that were more interesting. It was the challenge there that we all want to challenge. You know, how can you get the person to not, they don't have to like it, but just to be able to be calmly there. And uh, it was one of the things that I really liked about clinical practice. And that's, that's part of dealing with patients. Absolutely. With people of any kind. People and, and personalities, and we all have our idiosyncrasies. Oh, don't, don't we? we though? Don't we? <laughs> you know, you talked about um, those aha moments and, and being confident. I can think of my first speaking engagement as a brand new trustee was in Boston, and it was the uh, district one and two student meeting. So that meant it was all of the Northeast, and here were all these educators and students. And the opening session speaker was Esther Wilkins. Oh gosh, love that woman. And I had never even met her. I mean, she, you know, was she was in Washington when I, you know, she wrote the book, but she was in Washington. So we didn't, and I'm thinking, oh my God, what can I possibly say after Esther Wilkins? Then I thought, well, levity kind of makes you more comfortable. So when after she finished and I got called up to the podium, I planted my feet. And I put my hands on the podium and I looked out and I said, I feel I've come of age. Esther Wilkins is my opening act. And then I calmed down. And so then I bet the next few years, um, often Esther and I would be on the uh, on stage together and I would always thank her. And Esther, I want to thank you again for being my opening act. She never realized it was a trigger for me to calm down. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So my Esther story, I can remember, I, I know you probably remember what color your book is. I won't commit to what color it is because that shows how old I am. <laughs> it wasn't the first edition. <laughs> I know, I know that. But mine was blue. So I don't know what, you know. Mine was orange. Yours was the orange. Okay, so mine was blue. And I remember... Um, you know, talking to her, uh, Esther's niece after Esther um, passed away. And we were talking about, you know, memories and how, you know, it's just so amazing, no matter where you go, any, any dental hygienist out there will always know what color their book is. And they will always remember Esther Wilkins because of what she did for the profession. And, you know, I said, I hope she knew that before she passed. Now, I had worked with her a couple of times, you know, in my role at Tufts. But, you know, at that point, she could barely hear what anybody was saying. And, and you know, she would always smile and she was delightful. And, and right up until the very end, she was still writing another chapter of her book. I mean, just amazing, amazing woman. Just amazing. One of, one of my Esther's stories was that, it might have, I don't know if it was, I don't know what ADHA was doing a feature on her for, but she was on the cover of the book. And I got this panic call. I was no longer involved with ADHA, but one of the staff people who knew me called me and they said, we can't get her to finalize the picture on the cover of the journal. 
could you do something with her? I went, why don't you give me a task that's easy? So I called her up and she goes, well, I don't like my lips in this one. I don't like my eyes in this one. I I said, Esther, it's a picture. It is not a collage. (laughs) We have, so we ended up, she liked, I said, do you like the picture that's hanging outside the clinic? And she goes, oh, I love that picture. They had taken her for one of those sophisticated pictures. I can't remember what we called those things, but uh, the glamour shots. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I got the copy of that and sent it to ADHA. And they said, now we can go to print. And I, and I called and I said, and you don't get to change it again. It's over now. That's it. You're done. Well done. You're done. <laughs> it's all done. So tell me something, a secret that people would be surprised to know about you. Well, there, there are a couple. One of them was that I, that, that I was the only non-nun, non-NUN, on the administrative council of the Dominican Sisters of St. Catherine of Siena. I was the first administrator who was not a nun. And that was a little strange because um, when I got my, people are so used to people have being sister so-and-so, the printer called me and said, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is your, your business cards are done. The bad news is you're listed as Sister Patricia Crane Ramsey, OP. I said, I'll be right down to pick them up. He said, what are you going to do with them? I said, discounts, I mean discounts. And I would hand them out to friends when they'd say, oh, my husband wanted to know what you're doing these days. Oh, give him my new business card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's so funny. That's awesome. That's a good one. I, I, I only know one nun in my life, and that was my great aunt. So my grandmother's sister. And so well, when I worked at the, when I worked for the nuns, um, the person I had for my second grade teacher was now the treasurer. And so I was the development director. She was the treasurer. So we worked kind of closely together and she was a semi-difficult person at times. And one day she came in and, and she was just reaming me for whatever my incompetence or something. And I just turned to her and I said, must've been my early training. And she busted up laughing and she said, okay, I'll go away. (laughs) She just walked away. Oh my gosh, Pat, that's great. You know, I do think that you, you hit on a a great point earlier that humor does help so much to diffuse situations. And I think that if we, we take that advice, I, I think that's a great piece of advice and use it more often in our day that we could bring more levity to our days rather than you know, the constant sighing over how, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, you know, some days are easier than others, but man, oh man, just chuckle about something because quite honestly, I can't say that that's my everyday. I mean, I no, I agree. I agree. But I love it. I love it. And there there was one other thing that uh, when we talk about, you know, going to school and and you wouldn't shared earlier with me about dental school and all, I was rejected at a dental hygiene school that will remain nameless because I was only 17. I had had thumb surgery and knee surgery when I was a junior. I mean, I played basketball in a girl's school. That's brutal. And this woman told me that I had no future in dental hygiene. And for the next 30 years until she died, I was gunning for her. Every time I went to an ADHA meeting, I checked the attendees. Because she was a director of a program, and I thought she's got to be here because I want to go back and introduce myself. I'm that young that you said. And the only sad part was she's a Forsyth grad. <laughs> oh, now did you ever have an opportunity to tell her? Never saw her again. I she must have dug a hole and gone somewhere. But it was always that little nasty secret that she don't want to share with people. But I gunned for her for years. Yeah, you know, it's sad. It's sad. You know, I I shared with you earlier, you know, somebody's observation of me not being smart enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could have taken it the opposite way, right? I could have believed them. And I could have just said, okay, I'm never going to be a dentist, right? But I I chose the the contrary approach, which, you know, if people people that know me understand that that would be the only choice for me. And, and I said, no, you're not going to, you're not going to define me. So I think that that's really important that people can't define 
you exactly or tell you what you're going to be made of or what you can and cannot do because quite honestly it's only up to you and if you make the decision i quite honestly think we can do anything i really do true anything that you read well and, and that's if i really want to do it i can do it if i don't want to do it i can't do it i don't want to do it yeah right exactly. so but we we have to consider the surf the source there are lots of very unhappy people in the world who get their jollies out of destroying other people. You're absolutely right. Yeah, they just, my mother would say to me, you don't know what that person left at home. I thought, well, she could have left her at home too, but <laughs> <laughs> my mother was very different than I am. She was a very nice, uh, well, she was loving, but she was a nice, quiet person who mm -hmm. always thought the, the good, everybody was good. Yeah. That's the kind of mother you want to have, right? <laughs> well, and, you know, I'm sure she had, just like we all do, right? She had her true, wonderful parts and, and true nature. There, each one of us are filled with both. You know, it's a yin and yang approach to life. And that's, that's exactly what we have. And all the things that we're supposed to learn, we learn in some way, shape or form, either today or tomorrow, but it's coming someday. You know, if you got it to learn as, and it's on your path, then you're going to face it. So. Life is exciting. It is. I agree with you 100%. So I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been great getting back together with you. So nice to have a chat. And it's so nice to reconnect about our Forsyth roots. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. No, you're welcome. I really enjoyed it. So thanks, Pat. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.